so the work that I was doing both in national politics and also in the developing world was really, again, asking the question of what matters to human beings and their lives, right? So what's motivating to people? And what always sort of struck me was that people are united. There's kind of this universal thing that we all have. We all sort of want to be well. And, and frankly, the way that we make sense of wellness is quite similar, regardless of sort of what city you're in or even what country you're in, right? So people want to have healthy bodies, people want to have healthy families, and people want to have healthy communities. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Welcome to the All About Fitness podcast. That voice you heard in the beginning was Dr. Julia DeGangi. Dr. DeGangi is a neuropsychologist who studies in a very interesting field, and that's of stress and suffering. If you think about that, a lot of what we do in life, a lot of what we deal with every day is how do we deal with stress? And one of the things that exercise is, is exercises physical stress on the body. And then when we think about changing habits, when we think about changing behaviors, when we think about doing something new. If you're thinking about starting an exercise program, if you're thinking about starting changing nutrition, if you're thinking about changing your eating habits or trying to eat differently or trying to eat healthy, those are all changing habits. Changing habits is a stress. Changing habits involves a deep commitment, to, or not a deep commitment, but changing habits is an application of neuropsychology because behavior change does not happen overnight. There's a very specific science to behavior change. On this episode of All About Fitness, Dr. Deganji and I talk about stress. We talk about behavior change. We talk about what precipitates behavior change. And one of the things that's fascinating about Dr. Deganji's experience is that she's both worked on Capitol Hill, and anybody who listens to the podcast knows I'm a little bit of a political geek, but Dr. Deganji has worked on Capitol Hill and worked around politics, but she's also worked in the underserved underserved world, in the third world. She's worked where people don't even know if they're going to get enough food to eat for the day. And then think about that. Compare that to our stress, right? Your stress is you miss that stoplight or your stress is you might have to wait for five minutes for coffee at your favorite coffee shop. But think about the stress of the people who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Think about the stress who don't, of the people who don't even know where the next drink of water is coming from. And you thought you had a tough day. On this episode of All About Fitness, it's Dr. Julia DeGangi, a neuropsychologist, talking about stress and why stress, some stress that is, is actually good for us. What are you doing from June 26th to 30th? Well, if you're smart, you're going to join me and a number of other fitness industry leaders at the Idea World Convention in Anaheim, California. From June 26th to 30th on 2019, we are going to be there talking all things fitness, nutrition, and behavior change. If you want to up your fitness game, and folks, it does not matter. You could be a professional, you could be an instructor, a trainer. Or if you're just a fitness enthusiast and you want to see the Super Bowl of fitness, you too can join us at the Idea World Convention. You'll get firsthand best practices on power and effective workout programs for one-on-one and groups. You'll learn groundbreaking movement, nutrition, and behavior training strategies that can help you take your fitness professional game to the next level. You'll learn how to lead, manage, sell, market, and grow a bulletproof fitness business. And finally, you'll be able to learn how to use and implement the newest technology and fitness tools in your practice. There'll be a link down below in the show notes and listen to the end of the podcast for a special code that'll allow you to save $30 on this year's Idea World. That's Idea World 2019, June 26th to 30th in Anaheim, California. 
You can pick them up. You can carry them. You can lift them. You can swing them. You can throw them. You can do core training with them, metabolic conditioning with them, high-intensity interval training. Whatever you want to do with movement, you can do it with a sand bell, you can do it with soft bells, or you can do it with a vest by Hyperware. Hyperware makes some excellent products that allow you to move with extra resistance. Resistance training is what makes a difference in your body, folks. If you want to get stronger, you got to pick up something heavy. If you want to burn a few calories, you pick up something heavy a little bit faster, but do it safely. Whatever your fitness goal is, Hyperware makes a product that can help you achieve it. That's H-Y-P-E-R-Ware.com. Hyperware, makers of the vest, one of the best vests out there on the market. You can use a weighted vest that stays close to your body, and you can do a ton of cool body weight exercises with it with a little extra weight. Hyperware also makes sand bells and soft bells, very unique weights. I love them. I use them in my book, Smarter Workouts, because they work. Use code AAF10. That's AAF10 to save 10% on the purchase of any Hyperware product and go to hyperware.com to check out their entire catalog. It's a platform. It's a balance tool. You can do a ton of different exercises on it. Guys, you've been listening to me talk about the TerraCore. You've been hearing TerraCore ads on All About Fitness. Well, I've got great news for you. You. I went to the folks at TerraCore. The code AAF, I changed the code. The code AAF now gets you a 25%. That is 25, 25% savings on a TerraCore. Use code AAF to save 25% on a TerraCore. What is TerraCore? Don't go to TerraCoreFitness.com. That is TerraCoreFitness.com. T-E-R-R-A, corefitness.com, and check out one of the coolest products in fitness. See why Men's Health voted it one of the top fitness at-home products that you should have for your workouts. Check out TerraCore Fitness on Instagram to see some amazing tricks. Again, TerraCore now is 25% off through All About Fitness. Use code AAF to save 25% on the purchase of a TerraCore. I'm Pete McCall of the All About Fitness Podcast, speaking today with Dr. Julie, and I'm going to mess up the name right away. <laughs> Dr. Julie, I didn't even get the first name, but it's the, it wasn't the last name, it was the first name I messed up. Dr. Julia DeGangi. Uh, Dr. DeGangi, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm very happy to be here. Pete, how are you doing? I am doing just well. Now, looking at your background, the, the question that popped up to me, and, and for listeners, you know, I want to jump right into a slightly different line of conversation here, but you worked in the White House press office, and which, which administration did you work in? I was under the Clinton administration, so I was in the White House while Clinton was in the White House, and then I went on to work very, very extensively for the Gore campaign. And that's and see, that's an interesting background because for listeners who've heard me talk before, they know that I have a background in policy and politics before I got into fitness. So I saw that, and then I saw the work that you do, and I saw your TEDx talk where you talk about working in the developing world and working with people in very underserved areas of our world. Which was more difficult, working in politics in the first world or working with people at need in the developing world? Wow, that's an awesome question, and I love how you're kind of making those connections. A lot of times people don't really see the connection between my work, but for me, it's a very intuitive one. I've always been incredibly interested in what motivates human beings and how people find meaning. So in terms of which one was tougher, I think that... um, 
you know, I think there's an intensity. So in terms of my political experience, I did a lot of campaign work, so specifically on presidential campaigns. So oftentimes, just the acuity and the intensity of that um, can be, as you would imagine, quite intense. But I think that they're remarkably similar in a lot of ways. So the work that I was doing both in national politics and also in the developing world was really, again, asking the question of what matters to human beings and their lives, right? So what's motivating to people? And what always sort of struck me was that people are united. There's kind of this universal thing that we all have. We all sort of want to be well. And and frankly, the way that we make sense of wellness is quite similar regardless of sort of what city you're in or even what country you're in, right? So people want to have healthy bodies, people want to have healthy families, and people want to have healthy communities. And, and what, what, what jumps to mind when I heard you say that was, and in the notes I have for the conversation, is a key word stress. You know, because you talk mm-hmm. about, you know, I've worked in politics, and you're right, during certain cycles, it is just 24 hours of just high-intensity stress Whereas I'd imagine in, in the developing world, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from or you don't, where, don't know where clean water is coming from, is that must be a very high-stress environment. What does stress do to our body? Wow. So that's a huge question. So you're, you're absolutely right. So my, my, my area of expertise, I would say most specifically is the relationship between our brain and, and chronic stress or more specifically, even chronic traumatic stress. So as a function of that, in terms of my work as a psychologist, I do a lot of work with fear and stress-based pathologies. So things like PTSD, panic disorder, phobias, et cetera. Um, so really I've, I've spent a lot of my life life thinking about how does chronic stress affect the body. And it it does so in profound ways. So, you know, there's a copious amount of information, and I'm sure your listeners are all well aware that it increases our risk for so many diseases, so heart disease, stroke, certain types of cancer, and then puts us at risk for a lot of mental health-based pathologies, right? So depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, all of those share very intimate relationships with chronic stress. So I think that you're exactly right in terms of thinking about stress kind of affecting the individual. But one of the things that I'm sort of really, um, I would say it's kind of sort of the central mission of my life is to get people to see that stress is not just a personal problem. It's really a public health issue, right? If you think about what stress is not just doing to the individual, but to the family system, the community system, and then sort of the global system, it becomes quite profound. And what it, where I want to go with this and why I think it's it's perfect to have you on, and for listeners, we, we had a couple email changes back and forth where we're trying to find commonality, but exercise is stress imposed upon the body. And so how does exercise help in, in your area, specifically the brain? How does, how does exercise, exercise stress help the brain become more adaptable to other types of stressors we might experience in our daily lives? So one of the ways that I like to sort of explain exercise, specifically talking about cardiovascular aerobic type exercise, is I think you can kind of sort of as a heuristic think of it as the anti-stress. So I'm going to give you guys a quick crash course in neuroanatomy. Does that sound okay? Perfect. I love neuroanatomy. I love neuroanatomy. Hopefully listeners follow. They follow along. Okay. So I'm sure that people have some familiarity with the structure in the brain called the amygdala. 
So the amygdala, the best way to kind of think about it is the boss of your stress system. So anytime you're feeling stress, and by stress, I mean anytime you're feeling afraid, angry, agitated, that's kind of what I mean by sort of the body's stress response. So anytime you're having that kind of experience, it really all maps onto this brain structure called the amygdala. Okay, so that's structure number one. The two other structures I want to talk to you about is one called the hippocampus, and you can think of your hippocampus as your historian. So everything that we remember in our life effectively maps on to the hippocampus. And when you think about a memory-based pathology, most people think of Alzheimer's, right? So people obviously are sort of marked by profound impairment in memory. It's because the main site of that um, pathology is the hippocampus, right? So now we have our amygdala, which is the boss of our stress system. We have the hippocampus, which is our historian. And then we have something called the medial prefrontal cortex, which I like to think of as your commander-in-chief. So when we get stressed out, and this is the thing that, you know, people know that stress doesn't feel good, but one of the pieces I think that we unfortunately miss is you can really think of your brain as a muscle, right? So if I'm doing a thousand squats a day or, you know, five burpees a day, because I can't do more than that, um, I'm only going to get better at doing squats and burpees, right? Oh, your yeah. Brain, so that's your body's going to adapt. Go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. So your brain functions very much in the same way. So if I'm spending all my time getting stressed out, the parts of my brain that are responsible for that negative affect, that anger, that fear, et cetera, are only getting stronger. So we think that there's kind of changes that happen in the brain that would effectively make that stress circuitry more powerful, to kind of put it in basic terms. So I think people don't realize that necessarily, right? They think like, I, I don't feel stressed, or I, or I feel stressed rather on a Tuesday, that's too bad. I hope I don't feel stressed also on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But the reality is, is that being stressed will not only allow you to be more stressed in the future, it actually over time becomes easier to be stressed out. The other that's piece I want, yeah, so, go ahead. So I just want to say that's kind of like rolling your, and so in a way, that's kind of like rolling your ankle or spraining your ankle. If I sprain my ankle, then I'm more susceptible to ankle sprains, you know, further on down the line. So mm -hmm. if, if I understood you correctly, if I load myself up with stress, whether it's emotional stress or, or work stress, then my body is going to be more adaptable and I'm going to be more susceptible to stress, other types of stressors as well. So just like I'm at risk of spraining my ankle again, if I overload myself with stress, I'm at risk of always kind of constantly being in a stress state. Is that correct? Correct. So, you know, and again, we're, we're thinking kind of at sort of chronic sustained levels of stress, right? If you are generally a pretty well-balanced person, you take good care of yourself and you have a bad day, no problem. In fact, your biology is designed. Your biology is remarkably adaptable, right? The problem happens when you're stressed day in and day out. And unfortunately, a lot of us feel this way. And you made a, a point and I just kind of want to go back to it. You said sort of emotional stress or work stress. So I also think that people sometimes erroneously think that there's these kind of discrete categories of stress, but the reality is, is the brain, you know, 
it really is just interpreting the, the structures and the networks that are kind of supporting that stress response. It's really the same whether you're at work, you're in traffic, you're at home, you're thinking about early life experiences. So that's why I think we have to pay really close attention to where are these sort of pockets of stress in our life to really think well about how to not eradicate stress. We'll never get rid of that, but how to really manage it better. Well, that's what I liked about your TEDx talk. And for listeners, I'm going to have a link to uh, to the TEDx talk down below. But what I like, Julia, is you talked about suffering and the fact that we need to, some, rather than try to create a bubble around ourselves and protect ourselves from pain, that sometimes we right. need to embrace the suffering. Why is that? Oh, Pete, I'm so glad that you asked me that, com- that, that question. So I think we have got it all wrong in our conversations, our sort of social and cultural conversations about pain and suffering. Um, I think that we kind of have become, in a lot of ways, a culture obsessed with avoiding it. But I think that trying to avoid pain is as useful as trying to avoid breathing. If you really think, that. and you know... You know, I have done a lot of work with suffering in a lot of different populations. I've worked with combat veterans. I've worked, I said before, in politics. I've worked in international development. And now I I treat a lot of patients, right? So um, life promises pain, if you think about it. I'm certain that life doesn't promise us, you know, unending health or wealth or happiness. But all of us are familiar with suffering in its in its various forms, right? Loneliness, boredom, fear, agitation, anxiety. So I think that what the best way um, to really kind of think about pain is to understand that it in of itself is inevitable, but how we choose to respond to it can be remarkably different, right? So so the thing is coming. We're going to get hurt in some way. We're going to suffer. We're going to feel agitated. We're going to be disappointed. I think we can all sort of relate to that. But I think the better question then is to ask, because you know, here, here's another point I want to make that I think is really important, and I don't think we talk about it enough in this term, but pain is, and, I, and I'm speaking, certainly we can talk about physical pain, but that's not so much what I'm talking about in this context. I'm talking more about emotional discomfort or even emotional anguish, right? That is an energy. And I know it's an energy because if I put you in a scanner, if I put you in an fMRI magnet and we cause some kind of emotional pain, right? We you know, do something slightly embarrassing or things that are obviously ethically approved, very specific regions of your brain light up and they light up reliably. So when I say pain is an energy, I mean that kind of in the most biological sense. So I think, okay, so that energy exists. We all experience it. I think the better question isn't how can we avoid it, but what can we do to harness that pain so we can make more meaningful and more sustainable change in our life? I really, and that, I like your approach to that. And that's what I really liked about your TEDx talk is the fact that we need to, rather than to try to avoid things that make us uncomfortable, we need to embrace the discomfort. And what I tell fitness instructors and actually what I tell you know consumers as well all the time is our job, my job as an instructor, my job as a coach is to help you be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. Because the only way the body makes change is by going beyond your normal comfort limit. And if uh-huh. you stop before that discomfort occurs, 
you're not you're just going through the motions. You're not making any adaptations. Your physiology is not changing. So the toughest part I think for instructors is helping people get into that point of well, this doesn't hurt, but man, is this uncomfortable? Why is discomfort? Why is discomfort so good for us? Well, I think what you're effectively going after is, you know, change, right? And sustainable change always involves new learning, right? So whether I'm trying to now learn how to be a good piano player, whether I'm trying to learn how to uh, speak Spanish or whether I'm trying to, you know, master some physical exercise or, or lose weight, all of that essentially requires the body and the brain to learn new information. And learning is an active, energy-driven, and then because of that, an uncomfortable process. So there's absolutely something to be said about growing pains. And that's what I was kind of saying before, is that there's an energy to pain, and we can indeed use that energy to move us forward. Or as, as we, I think, are all aware too, we can also use that energy to kind of make us stay stuck. And I think in really extreme cases, we can use that sort of energy, that uncomfortable energy to bury us. Well, I'm going to come back to something because, and I've been thinking about this, and I'm trying to, I may not ask it the right way, but earlier you mentioned, you know, we kind of condition ourselves for stress. And, and so also, I think the converse to that is we can condition ourselves to be in a good mood. And you talk about, you know, with, with the work that you do, you talk about kind of the neuroscience of the mind-body connection. So is that really a function? If people are in a state of chronic stress or they kind of always are, you know, a Debbie Downer, I, I have a colleague who we sometimes refer to as kind of like that type of individual, kind of that wah-wah. Okay. Is it possible to retrain your brain to focus on the positive and, and what needs to take place for that to happen? Awesome question. So I, I, you know, I know a lot of people in the world are asking that question. Um, so I think, first of all, I think change is absolutely possible. I wouldn't be doing this line of work if I didn't believe that change was possible. And I think that humans are fundamentally resilient. Um, but what you're kind of talking about when you're getting into sort of affective states, right? So kind of changing the way I see the world or being more positive or having kind of more motivation, in order to access those those parts of the brain, because they're kind of very deep, primitive parts of the brain, you have to sort of figure out where the pain point really is that's preventing you from developing. Because what you're effectively asking me is, okay, I'm Debbie Downer one day, and you don't mean, how can I not be Debbie Downer for the rest of the afternoon, but how can I kind of sustainably be less of a Debbie Downer over time? Well, in order to develop that new habit, you really have to target what is the accurate pain point? What is the accurate place that you want change to have happen? And this, this is not kind of an insignificant detail, right? If there's a leak in my house, is that helpful information alone? No, because maybe it's the bathroom sink, maybe it's the kitchen sink. And I think a lot of times when people aren't eating right or they're depressed or they're not going to the gym, they're trying to fix the bathroom sink when it's really the kitchen sink, right? Wow, I love that analogy. That is a phenomenal analogy. So I think then what this kind of means is um, I'm going to give you what I hope are two lessons that I share with my own clients because I want to give some concrete. I tend to be a very concrete thinker. So I'm going to give you basically two concrete lessons that I hope will be of use to your listeners. So the first is to live like a scientist. And the second is to engage in radical truth telling. Okay. 
So let's say, let's, let's talk through an example. I think that's kind of the best way, and then I'm happy to sort of back it out and talk more abstractly about it. But let's say um, I don't go to the gym, okay? So typically, I'll say something like, can't go to the gym today. Right? We say that like, oh God, I can't can't make it there yeah, today. Yeah, I'm busy. I got yep. this going on. I got that yep. going on. It's just it's not gonna happen today. So here's what it means to be a scientist. Okay. So when I say I cannot go to the gym, if I'm if I'm truly willing to kind of take this lesson on and say I'm gonna live like a scientist, I now ask, what do the data actually say? So when I say I cannot go to the gym today, do I mean that someone is physically restraining me? Do I, do I, does the data actually say that my legs do not work or that my car has no gas or that the gym is closed, right? So it, it sounds funny, but I'm actually not trying to be cheeky or, or demeaning. What I'm trying to say is when we ask language, and we maybe we'll have time to talk about where language lives in the brain and what it does for us, language is an incredibly powerful vehicle when we're thinking about sustainable behavioral change. So you can already see by saying like, wow, saying I can't go to the gym today, if I'm, if I'm choosing to be kind of a dispassionate scientist and look at the data, I actually cannot continue to say that anymore. I can't say I can't do it. So then comes the radical truth-telling part. And I always tell my clients is all we need to do is have kind of a curious spirit and a willingness to explore it and talk it through out loud. And radical truth-telling begins with I'm noticing and I wonder. So for example, say like you're working with a client who's like, oh man, I just, I just can't pull it off. So you would say like, I'm noticing that you're saying I can't go to the gym. I'm noticing that you make that statement a lot. I'm noticing that this statement cannot be true of a physical, because of a physical limitation. So if it's not a physical block, I'm wondering if it's an emotional block. I'm wondering how you're feeling. I'm wondering and so on and so on and so on. So because by kind of just engaging, and once again, that very non-judgmental, dispassionate analysis, I think it allows you to arrive in a new space and then make a lot more honest statements, right? I'm actually stressed as hell, and I'm tired because I feel intimidated at work, and I feel like if I leave early, people are going to think I'm a failure. So I'm exhausted all the time. Okay, now I have, maybe it's not going to be an easy change, but I have a hell of a lot better chance of making that change if I'm honest about the, that it's the bathroom sink and not the kitchen sink than if I just continue to say, I can't get it, I can't get there because actually my legs work and I do have gas in my car. I love the way you break it down. As a writer, I've you know last number of years, I spend I spend more and more time kind of trying to understand the meaning of words. And you're right; people physically are not limited. I know I giggled a little bit because I'm thinking of the image, mm-hmm. but but literally, you are being 100 percent accurate. And me saying I can't go to the gym today is a false statement because mm-hmm. I can. I have a million different ways I can get there, just whether or not it's a priority. And I want to stay with language for a second. I'm really, really glad you mentioned the brain's response to language, because this is something that comes up with fitness instructors quite a bit. And listeners who go to different instructors can hear, they might gravitate to, to some instructors who are much more positive and upbeat, as in, hey, we're all going to feel better today. Hey, don't you feel good after this workout? Doesn't this feel awesome? Versus somebody that might say, you need to work harder, push yourself, go, go, go. Mm -hmm. What is it about language? How does language influence the brain? And what's that mean for the whole fitness experience? I know it's a huge question, but it really is. I think that's a very important subset because the words we use and the words we say matter. Absolutely. So there's a lot of interesting studies on um, 
motivation in the brain. And I, I don't do a lot of work. I'm invited oftentimes into organizational contexts, so companies and schools, because obviously they're very interested in thinking about motivation. So I'm happy to say more about that later if that's of use. But um, I, you know, what we kind of know is that if you are interested in motivating someone, it is actually more effective, especially what's interesting too is sort of, um, and this is not my precise area of expertise, but my understanding of the literature is that it also matters of where you are in your lifespan. So for example, if you're, you know, younger and if you're kind of older, it's much more effective to motivate someone by focusing on the positive. So instead of saying, hey, if you don't stop playing that video, video game, you're going to fail that test, right? It's much better to say, oh my gosh, I know you're having so much fun playing that video game, but think about how amazing you're going to feel when you're proud of your performance on the test, for example, right? So to take that back to your fitness instructor, I think people um, are, it's already been hard work to even get to the gym. And then it's hard work when you're at the gym and we are incredibly wired for social connection profoundly wired. It's as, as essential as water and food. If you're thinking about, you know, not a day's time, but sort of a lifespan, we just can't, we're tribal animals, right? So I think getting encouragement from other people is not only important, but it's it's essential. And if you think about what social media is, so my, my joke is like, what do you think is the one thing that has made Facebook the global behemoth that Facebook has become? You want to take a guess? It's that instant. It's that instant feedback. I mean, you get that instant, you know, kind of satisfaction right away, or instant social engagement. Absolutely, and I think even more, kind of, sort of, you know, humorously, I think it really is the like button, right? So, like, mm. it's basically people in an instant, whether you've taken a picture of your car's thermostat or you've bought bread at the grocery store, can immediately not just say, "Oh, hey, I, I know that you bought bread," but give you affirmation, right? And it's interesting too that Facebook, I know now they have like the sad face and I think they have the heart. I don't use it a ton, but um, it started with just the thumbs up. And if, and I know for a fact, I mean, I don't actually, that's kind of now I'm being, I'm, I'm overstepping my scientist role, but I, I can imagine that Facebook would not have been anywhere near as successful as it was if we didn't have that ability to get positive feedback from people who we care about. So I think, well, let's, let's yeah. ask, sorry, let me ask you this question about social media because, this, you know, this, this, I wrote this down earlier based on something you said. You know, this promise of instant happiness, what's going on biochemically? If I see that somebody likes my post or if I see that somebody is having a reaction, isn't it – my understanding is I'm, I'm going to produce some neurotransmitters that are going to influence my mood. So when I see this social media, how does that influence my brain? Great question. So, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of reward circuits in the brain. So you can kind of divide the brain into having sort of threat networks, so things that process things that are dangerous, and then reward networks, so things that make us feel good. So that would certainly be praise. It would be drugs. It would be food. It would be sugar. It would be sex, et cetera. So basically, when we are affirmed in that way, we get kind of, I'm using air quotes, which I know your listeners can't see, but, you know, kind of get that hit or that, that sort of positive sometimes people will kind of call it a, a dopamine squirt. I don't think neuroscientists like to talk like that, but you know, um, so you definitely kind of get this pop. But the thing is, and I think that this is why it's so important to make a distinction between happiness 
versus joy. Because happiness is what I call sort of this, I'm pursuit of this hedonic treadmill, right? So someone tells me I did a good job. They pat me on the head. They give me a little like on my Facebook page. And then I'm kind of jonesing for another one in about five minutes, right? You get it again. And this is also what happens in, in, in all these other facets of our life. If you think about an organizational context, I get a raise. I'm happy for what? Three months, six months, a year. I don't know. Then I want another one. I get a new car. It's cool for what? I don't know. Three weeks, three months. I don't know. And then I want another one, right? So that's what we would call um, in a neuropsych context, extrinsic motivators. So extrinsic mm-hmm. motivators are great attractors. I'm very interested in this job. I'm very interested in this opportunity, but they're not good sustainers. Does that make sense? That's really... Uh, that- no, that that's completely, and, and that ties right in. I mean, I know we, I'm, I've got to respect your time here. You know, but on your website, for your neural health partners website, you talk about the neuroscience of the mind-body connection, mm-hmm. and you've used fMRI. Can you let's go into that a little bit? Is there really because we talk about this all the time in like these classes, right? Yoga, Pilates, we have this mind-body connection, and for people like me, anytime you pick up a weight, and anytime you do anything active there's a mind-body connection. It's not just happening in a yoga class. You know, if you're doing a strength training, if you're going for a run, your mind is kind of connected to your body. So what is the, is there, is there a literal, is there a physical neuroscience of the mind-body connection? And, and what does that, what do you look at in, when you study that? So, um, yes, I mean, I think the body is sort of in its broadest sense, everything that is embodied in us. So certainly the brain can affect the body and the body can affect the brain. And I think a great example of this is what we know about now going to physical pain and kind of placebo effects, right? So we know that um, if you think about even what's kind of happening in some pharmaceutical studies is when people who, for example, have chronic pain are given a placebo, those results, sort of the benefit they get from the placebo, especially if the placebo can be, you know, um, someone taking good care of them, being extra attentive, there, you know, there's oftentimes difficulty distinguishing how much more of a positive impact a pharmaceutical would have, right? So if what that's basically telling us is that the brain has the capability to modulate our experience of pain, right? So I think the body and the brain are a system that work as one. And even if you think about the stress system, the way the signal goes, right, is have you heard of the HPA axis? Yeah, the, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal. Yes. Right, yep. Right so when that? you think okay. about the, the adrenal, right, that signal ultimately travels down to your adrenal glands, which sit atop your kidneys. And that's where, you know, these chemicals get released from that ultimately travel back to your brain. So the mind-body connection um, is incredibly real. And one of the things that really excites me sort of to be here in 2019, and I myself am a yoga instructor as well, is it's very interesting to know that people kind of had this wisdom for thousands and thousands of years. And now we're at this unique place in history where we now have some of these imaging technologies, so fMRI or EEG. And now we're kind of able to ask ask scientific questions to kind of tap into some of the wisdom that people have known so long. Yeah, that's what I like about this because you're right. I mean, we've been doing meditation for years. You exactly. know, if you're a yoga instructor, you, you know that the, the you know you know the background of that. You know, then finally to kind of ask that you're you're especially in what you're gonna be speaking on at Ideal World is about behavior change. So one of the one of the big question, I guess, is how does exercise change the brain 
to support behavior change. Because we know there's a trans-theoretical model. We have these stages, pre-contemplation, contemplation. But does exercise create a physical change in the brain that supports the action of changing a behavior? Absolutely. So I want to go back to our neuroanatomy lesson. So we kind of talked through the amygdala and really talking about how repeated stress over and over and over makes effectively the function of the amygdala more potent, right? So the other two pieces I told you about were the hippocampus and the medial prefrontal cortex. So what we know about stress is we know that stress attacks those structures in the brain. So over time, chronic levels of stress, we would expect to see atrophy in the hippocampus and the medial prefrontal cortex, right? The problem with this in terms of behavior change is whenever we're making a change, we need, and this is kind of the, the sort of the sad irony, we need the best parts of our brain. We need to really be able to think about context, to understand where we were, where we want to go. We need to be able to regulate our emotions. We need to problem solve. We need to troubleshoot. We need to organize. Well, the medial prefrontal cortex is basically the boss of all those really sophisticated human functions. We call them executive functions. So when stress is attacking that region of the brain, and now I'm trying to make this change to make my life better, you can see how those are like, you know, creating a tension that creates a challenge that's not easy to surmount. But exercise, I call it kind of the anti-stress, and once again, in non-visible air quotes. So when you're exercising, you're doing the opposite thing to this kind of circuit. So the amygdala is become sort of less, less potent, sort of its ability to get stressed out and kind of send signals to the rest of the body. It kind of can turn the volume down on that. And exercise is what we consider neuroprotective for not only the brain, but specifically these two structures I'm talking about, the hippocampus and the medial prefrontal cortex. So this is why, and I love, once again, this language neurobiology relationship. So you know how people will go, oh my God, I'm so stressed out. I have to go for a run to clear my head. Right? So it's kind of... Yeah, no, it's a very common, yeah, yeah, so the reason is because exercise kind of allows us to burn off some of these um, neurochemicals and this sort of stress-related neurochemical cascade. So that's kind of an acute sense. And you can imagine sort of over time, if I'm in good health, my ability to think clearly and implement this behavioral change I'm after is only going to become more possible because we're strengthening the very parts of the brain that are necessary to support that change. Now, and that brings a question. What, a note I wrote down in this is, you know, PTSD. And, and I know this is an area that you've looked at. And, and out here where I live in San Diego, it's a huge, huge issue with the Marines that are coming back or have, have come back from these combat situations. Would, would, you know, PTSD, could that be considered like kind of the brain shutting down and going into survival mode? So I would say that PTSD is... Um yeah, I mean, so your num- the number one thing your brain wants to do is to keep you alive, right? Above everything else, it wants to keep you alive. And so what I actually think PTSD is, again, I only have a few minutes, so this is a very simplified explanation, but in a lot of ways, it's a disorder of dysregulation, right? So we're putting kind of too much emphasis on sort of um, fear cues, and we're putting too little emphasis on kind of um, troubleshooting or problem solving in ways that are really adaptive for us to function well in the world. But it's also a disorder of avoidance, 
Okay. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. when um, these combat veterans come back home, they avoid doing things in their life that become very problematic, right? So you can imagine that if they were involved in a roadside attack, maybe they're no longer able to drive or they don't like public um, spaces. They don't like restaurants. They don't like malls. They don't like buses. And then you can imagine by avoiding that over and over and over again, how that can create significant disruption in their life. I think, does that make sense? So how the disorder is going? Oh, it makes total sense. Absolutely. Yeah. We avoid what we don't, we, we avoid what's uncomfortable. Yes. But, you know, here is the, the piece that I think is relevant. I really have staked my career on avoidance. I think that we don't talk enough about sort of this pain and avoidance relationship. So part of the reason this happens is once again, your brain is wired for your survival. So if I put my hand on a hot stove and I burn it, I whip my hand back. How many times do I ever have to do that again? Probably none. Yeah. You right. Know and we happen. have actually have a term for it. It's called one trial learning. So that was so powerful and so painful to your brain. Your brain says, let's never go back there again, i.e. let's avoid that for perpetuity. Unfortunately, your brain hasn't evolved in such a way that it's it's really sophisticated in understanding the difference between emotional and physical pain. So what this model means is that when it comes to emotional distress, emotional pain, emotional discomfort, oftentimes we avoid, 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 when really the thing we need to heal is confrontation, right? We need to approach the thing. I don't mean confrontation like yelling and screaming. I just mean if you constantly and chronically avoid the source of your injury, it's impossible to heal. And so what we know, going back to PTSD, the frontline most scientifically supported treatments paradoxically require people to think about their trauma, to talk about their trauma over and over and over again, because it's only by approaching the thing that we've historically avoided that the brain can then reorganize itself and learn, oh, hey, that memory that I thought was so terribly dangerous, I'll never like it. It will always be a terrible thing that happened to me, but I can absolutely cope with it. That's really important because because I, I like the I like ending on this because I think one of the big stressors of people who exercise or people who are on the fence and these yo-yo exercisers is there's this constant stress of I need to do more I need to get in shape and I need to always kind of like look a certain way so I, I think that can contribute down to to um, the stress as well so to wrap it up you know what it, what are one or two key things that people should think about if they want to have successful behavior change, if they've been thinking about making a change and it's been in the back of their mind, or I know I need to do something different. I know I need to take control of my health. What is one, what's like one simple thing that somebody could maybe do right now to start moving towards a healthier behavior change or moving towards changing a behavior? Sure. Absolutely. I kind of want to go back to this sort of thing that I was saying earlier about, um, living like a scientist and the sort of idea of radical truth telling. And I want to go back to something you just said, which is kind of like people that kind of have this yo-yo relationship with the gym and why is that the case? If you think about the habits that people are most struggling with, no one comes to me and is like, you know what, doctor, I'm having a lot of trouble brushing my teeth or putting on my seatbelt or having the habit of remembering to charge my cell phone at night or remembering to shower, right? We have no problem with those type of habits, right? Which tells you it's not 
habits and sort of its relationship to the brain isn't just binary, right? Different things and different types of habits have different meaning to us. The things that we are trying to build habits around that we struggle with are much more deeply related to our well-being and these more essential parts of our human experience, right? So the things we're really trying to build habits around are how to treat our bodies better, how to eat healthier foods, how to move more, how to be kinder and more grateful about the way our, our bodies can move and feel. I think a lot of times we have a lot of body shame. We, we don't feel like we're good enough. There's kind of always this inadequacy narrative. Um, how to kind of be more confident at work, to be more present with our kids. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Everyone can kind of relate to this. So I think that the first thing we need to do is get once again to the actual source of what are people trying to create habits around? And then what is the actual thing that they're avoiding that's preventing that behavior from being learned? So for example, if I believe that I don't, I don't belong in a healthy body. It does not matter how much data you give me. It does not matter if you send an Uber to my office every day and you physically put me in the Uber. People will come up with reasons to continue to avoid it. So this is what I was saying. I've kind of staked my career on avoidance. And, and I, so I want to kind of leave your listeners with this live like a scientist, tell sort of radical truth telling. And this final piece that I kind of call the the paradox of progress. So if your listeners are interested in sustainable change, they have to start thinking about the things that they've actively been avoiding. And at the beginning, this can kind of feel paradoxical or counterintuitive, right? Because you're like, whoa, I just wanted to like get to the gym. And now I feel like I'm reflecting on these things that kind of make me sad or it's a little bit darker or it's less motivating. But the paradox is that if you actually approach what you are avoiding, you'll have remarkable change in terms of your mood, your motivation, positive affect, hope. So I think that understanding how to manage our emotional lives, which live in, in sort of a very different part of our brain than our sort of intellectual life, I think that when we can kind of get more in touch with that, a lot of these obstacles that we keep hitting can really clear up for us. And I say that because that's really backed by scientific evidence and it's also backed by my clinical experience treating patients for years and years. Well, that's this is fascinating stuff, and I know uh, you know we got we got a heart out here, and I really really appreciate your time. I, I love this stuff, and, and for people for listeners, we have to understand when we exercise, most of our focus is on our muscles, but really, uh, you know, just as Doctor Deganji suggested, that it really it's our brain that controls everything. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to your talk at Ideal World this year. Where can people go? Do you have a website that people can go to to get more information? And do you offer education for people that might want to learn more? Absolutely, about this? I'm, I'm so glad you. Asked about that. So our website is um, NeuroHealth Partners. So that's N-E-U-R-O healthpartners.com. And we do offer training. So we offer what we call sort of brain train certificates for people who are interested in getting sort of more of an evidence-based understanding of the brain. So I know everyone always calls it the mind-body connection, but the neuropsychologist in me has to call it more technically the brain-body connection. And also, you're exactly right, the relationship between our cognitive health and our emotional health. So I love, Pete, that you have really kind of given me this opportunity, and it seems like you share the sentiment that the brain and the body are related. Similarly, 
our cognitive, our cognitive life, the way we think is absolutely intertwined with our emotional life. So if you want to think better at work, think better in your relationships, think better about your business or whatever, you, you can't really excel there if you haven't kind of figured out what you need to get out of your closet in terms of your emotional life. So all of these things are interrelated. And the more we learn about the brain, the more we see just how deeply connected our one physical system is. This is absolutely fascinating. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing your talk, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you in person. Thank, Thank you for you your so time. Thank you so much. You take care, and I look forward to seeing you at the convention as well. That was a fascinating conversation. And before I get into formal wrap-up, i got to do a quick plug. You know the deal. If you want to learn more about exercise... And really, if you want to learn how to use exercise to do two things, one, enhance your quality of life, and two, slow down the aging process. Because yes, regular exercise, good nutrition, smart choices can really help you stay younger longer. That can slow down the aging process. And I discuss that in my book, Smarter Workouts. That's Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. There's a link below in the show notes. And you can walk away. I think I have uh, 21 different workouts in there that can deliver all kinds of results using a variety of different equipment. Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple, published by Human Kinetics, written by yours truly. And secondly, if you do want to go to Ideal World and see wonderful speakers like Dr. Deganji, then use PETE19. That's P-E-T-E-1-9. Use code PETE19 if you sign up for Ideal World 2019 and save $30 off the price of admission. Now, as I said, when I was getting ready for this interview, I was looking at this and, and kind of I understood that Dr. Deganji has a consulting company working with fitness professionals because her job's behavior change is helping coach behavior change. And when I was looking at this and I was thinking about, okay, what, how are we going to have this conversation? We overlook the fact that, that exercise is stress. So if we learn how to use exercise properly, if we learn how to stress the system properly, then we can handle other things in life. You know, if you have those days where you feel overwhelmed, you feel stressful and, oh my goodness, there's just so much. You know what helps with that? Being able to crush a killer workout. If you can crush a workout, if you can get through a challenging workout, if you can get through a challenging run, if you can get through a challenging class, guess what? Getting through that meeting, giving that presentation, going through that review is not going to be as tough. The brain is a muscle just like other muscles in your body. It can be conditioned to stress. And I love, if you really, and I can't stress this enough, (laughs) just a different form of the word, right? I can't emphasize this enough that I'm going to have a link below to Dr. DeGange's TEDx talk about why we should suffer a little bit. Think about that. You know, you have this thing, I was just listening to a sports radio show just today, talking about how kids, all kids want to win. All kids get trophies. Well, life is not all about winning. Life is... There are some crappy times in life. There are going to be some times when life punches you in the jaw and you look, you try to pick your head up and guess what? It hits you in the, on the other side of the face with a two by four. We have to have some stress in our lives. We can't be an ostrich and stick our head in the sand. And what I like about Dr. DeGange's conversation today is we have to learn how to use stress appropriately. Stress can make us stronger. Stress can build us up if we know how to apply it. And that's really what exercise is. We are stressing our bodies with exercise in order to give us the strength and resilience that we want. This was a fascinating conversation today. I really highly recommend you check out Dr. DeGange's TEDx talk. It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. If you're going to be at Idea World, I highly recommend you catch one of her talks at Idea World. 
catch one of my one of my workshops. I'm doing something called Glute Reboot. If you want to learn how to train your glutes nine ways a Sunday. And folks, Ideal World is not for fitness professionals. You can come join us in Anaheim like anybody else can, June 26th to 30th. Hope to see you there. Thanks for stopping by this episode of All About Fitness. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes.